Hey, we love Burger King grilled dogs. They're made with 100% beef, and they're 100%. Mm. They're so good, they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel, we're your host. So happy to have you with us for this unusual episode. And I use the word unusual because something happened doing it that hasn't happened in any of the podcasts that have been recording. And that's a podcast that I intended to have as a single episode, having all the guests that I do. And it ended up having so much content that I had to split it into two because there wasn't enough that I could cut. I wanted to keep everything that was there. So the way that I decided to split it was that I put first part of the Eliminated series, which is going to center on the Boston Celtics, and that's a conversation with Jared Weiss and Andrew Perna, that is its own podcast. It will come out the same day. It'll come out on Thursday, so you can listen to them in either order. They are independent. And then this podcast is Ronnie Singh, or Ronnie2K as most people know him, of 2K Games, and Ethan Sherwood-Strauss of ESPN. So first up is Ronnie Singh. He occupies a unique place in the world of basketball and there aren't too many people who truly have unique places and that's as the social media ambassador guru whatever word you want to use for 2k particularly nba 2k and he has a really interesting insight into how that world works and he has an intensely interesting job which is why i wanted him for the my life in basketball feature our conversation runs about 25 minutes I really enjoyed it and it was something that I think adds to the conversation and I really like having his voice and insight on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for coming on. No, I'm I'm glad to do it. So I figured with you the best place to start is for you to actually describe the day-to-day of your job and I guess we should start with your title. Okay, sure. I head up all of our digital marketing efforts at 2K. Um, it's funny, you know, I, jo- I joined a long time ago as a community manager, and community management is this term that gets bandied about a lot. And what does it really mean? Like, am I controlling the community sentiment? Am I doing community relations? What is that? And my role is so different than that. Obviously, you know, I am the pulse of the community. I talk to our fans all the time, but I'm also doing a bunch of bigger marketing initiatives that definitely include empowering our community, but also leveraging our athletes and celebrities and the people that love our brand because we have super influential people in our community. And I think that's why the whole community management thing has kind of blown up and turned into something else. Basically, I deal with anything where fans are related in in any way for the NBA 2K franchise. Yeah, and can you describe how the prevalence of the 2K series has changed your role in that part of your job? 
Yeah, definitely. When I first started here in 2000, early 2008, you know, we were we were selling about a million or so copies of NBA 2K. We weren't the nomenclature 2K and what that means to everyone as much as we are now. Now, you know, people bandy that term around. I'm going home to play 2K. I'm going home to beat everyone at 2K. That really has changed culturally, that, that expression. And obviously our sales and our presence uh, across the board has really increased. It's just become kind of a nomenclature in the culture. And with that, my role has changed. You know, like social media, when I first started here, obviously was just at its origins. Twitter started in 2007. Facebook started a little bit earlier, but people weren't using it as a brand vehicle. Now, obviously, those two are super critical, along with YouTube and blogs and Everywhere, you know, that that includes social media. Social media is huge in terms of overall general marketing campaigns. And the other interesting part of it for me is that it seems like the discussion of it also benefiting from Twitter among players and the basketball community itself, like among the professional basketball community, has really expanded over the even particularly the last two years, two, three years. Yep. Yeah, I mean, uh, athletes feel like it's a vehicle to get out their thoughts without the media filter and really tell people how they feel about stuff and the athletes you know this probably isn't shocking to you but i think a lot of people find it surprising that they're just your average mid to late 20s or early 30s type of guy and they like they have the same interests that you know you or i have and i I think that's why i'm in the role that i'm in i can really relate to some of these guys Uh, you know i played college basketball and I've always been around the game of basketball, but I also, you know, I have the same interests, video games, girls, you know, <laughs> cars, the things that they have interest in. So it allows me to kind of speak to them on that level. And, you know, that's the kind of things that they're talking about on social media. And obviously Twitter is the big one. You often see athletes talking between themselves. And, you know, every time I see somebody talk about 2K, I'm usually actively trying to pursue them and trying to bring them into our fold because, I know that they want to have those kind of conversations. And the other thing that has helped, I think, in terms of basketball and social media in the 2K franchise is that Mm -hmm. the structure of their off time actually works very well for something like your product because they have this kind of during the day downtime and with the way that their system works and when the season is, it works reasonably well. And so it makes sense that they would be playing during those times and all things. And players have been playing video games from what I can tell for basically as long as they've been around. And so to have one that they've been able to embrace in basketball is, is a natural fit. Absolutely. And to take it another level, I mean, I, I have talked to a lot of the guys, they use it as a scouting report. I mean, you know, we have the NBA Today feature where, you know, the game that they're going to play tonight is the featured game. And we kind of see those matchups and we get all of our stats from the various 82games.com and StatSync and all that stuff. It's relevant and it's it's a tool for them to learn. And obviously it is very fun to play our game, don't get me wrong, but it's also facilitating as a learning tool for a lot of the guys. Oh, I've been told that so many times. Yeah, speaking personally, the thing that I've used it for since I would guess somewhere around 2K8, something in that range, was mm-hmm. I like to, to visualize trades and to think, okay, so what if this guy was playing there? And while you can do some of that with statistics and you can do some of it mentally, I actually try to figure out the geometry of the court with the actual guys and just try to think think about it. And I, I have my own 
heavily modified. Not that your rosters aren't great. They are great, but uh, yep. to code for certain things and like coaching tendencies and all that, especially if you're going for something that's counterfactual. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to have the infrastructure in place to be able to do that and think about it in, a, I would say, a more visual way because you can see that you can, you know, you can fill with the players and you can make them do things and go, oh, okay, well, that's how it might work. And okay. that's been incredibly useful for me in certain circumstances. And if I ever were in a team capacity, I would still do the exact same thing. No, absolutely. And you build a team based on their obviously roles and responsibilities. You're not going to put super teams together. You can see it in the NBA. You might put super teams together because, you know, you want to score a lot of points, but there are roles and kind of functions that every player has. And you want to build a team that sort of makes sense in a certain philosophy, just as if you were running a regular NBA team. And just like running a regular NBA team, one of the things that I've liked that's been more prevalent in recent years is the idea that players have egos and that they're they're not always going to be yep. happy taking a smaller role. And okay. that's something that a lot of people, and this is something I deal with in my own writing, don't always think about. And that's something that's been very useful to me as somebody who's covered the NBA and been in locker rooms for five years is to understand that these are people. And I think that one of the challenges in doing games is to combine the fact that these are people that can do superhuman things, but also people who are human beings at the same time. Absolutely. You know, the funny thing is we have modes in our game where you can play, you know, your career and you've built, all, you know, your guy. But it's funny when you put them together with four other guys, all five of them want to score and all five of them want to. The scoring is obviously the, the glorious thing to do. But there are guys that try to build themselves as pass first or bruisers in the lane or rebounders or what have you. And those are definitely much more important. And, you know, we're trying to figure out ways to kind of reward those kind of players as we look more towards the online gaming structure. We want to give benefit for playing those other positions and doing those other roles. And we're always thinking about teammate grade in, in my career. And a lot of people play a little different on my career with a single-player mode, obviously, where they're trying to get rebounds and assists and the periphery stats. But, you know, that hasn't translated as much as we wanted it to on online. But I think it's something that we are thinking about a lot for, for next year and for future years. And it's also interesting as somebody who covers the sport because it is true that there is the disconnect between what's fun and what helps your team win. And I think that that's mm-hmm. it's always been kind of interesting to me that the game and I think that's one of the one of the ways that it, it works for me is part of the reason that it's fun is that it's it makes you appreciate, you know, getting them onto the post is difficult. It's not the easiest thing in the world. We see that all the time in the league and things like that. And so to be able to do that and to be able to do the little things that become the big things in terms of team defense and things like that, that's been a progression in the game as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you you know, you also got to think about in the association more than our game, but you got to think about your your bench and your role players and all of that stuff. I mean, Chris, my right hand guy at two K LD two K on Twitter, he's always uh, uh he's going to hate what I'm about to say, but the the Lakers last year are a perfect example. They put four superstars together, definitely nearing the end of their career, and it it just didn't work because it was big personalities that didn't really play within their role and they never got the chemistry of a team and I think that's why talented as Miami is it took them two years to win the championship because they had to learn for a year Uh, every team's going to take a a year or so to learn and the best teams are always the ones that build over over time and you know have a foundation like the the Thunder and the Spurs and you know the, the Spurs are obviously on an 18 game winning streak right now but those core three guys have played together for a really long time and then on top of that, they've, they've always put really good pieces around them. 
Yeah, they have. One thing that I wanted to talk to you about, we've actually talked about it a little bit offline before, is I found the process for doing the facial technology for the next generation systems a very interesting thing, and I was Mm -hmm. hoping you could explain how that happened to listeners. Sure. We have the most dedicated dev team, I think, on the planet. I could probably safely say that. Those guys are so passionate about chasing whatever's necessary, basically. So Last year, we had the opportunity between the current generation of consoles and the next gen with PS4 and Xbox One to take it to another level. And so we chased NBA players all over the nation. I mean, there was there were so many opportunities to go and find guys that were on their road trip either here in Oakland or San Francisco, the Bay Area or we would have to go chase them across the country. And I, I don't know how we pull this off, but we got about 85 to 90% of the of the league head scanned. And by head scanned, it's this five-minute process where, you know, pictures are taken of them at all angles. And, you know, it really allows us to get all of the, the different structures of a face. But the eco-motion technology also allows us to capture the emotions of the face too. So, like, in, in that process, we ask them to, pretend that they had just hit a game-winning shot and, and what their reaction would be there. And after a, after a defeat, what their reaction would be there. And, and so it allows us to kind of synthesize that experience to animate around what is happening in the game situations in 2K14. And, you know, it was, but the amount of work that goes into that, you know, it just it makes hats off to my dev team. They really chased everywhere. And to build up that kind of sophistication is really unparalleled for any game out there. And the other interesting thing about it to me as somebody who's been a gamer for a long time is that Mm -hmm. the idea is that you'll have that foundation for future games so that you can, you have that visual foundation between that and the work that you guys did on on arenas, that you can have these talented people kind of going in other directions. Obviously, you'll still need to do some cleanup work, as you said, it was 85, 90%, so there'll be guys, hopefully, hopefully they've already signed signed up or whatever. And and whatever. Yeah. Yep. But so that foundation can be used for, we don't know how long this generation of consoles yep. is going to be, but let's say it's six years. That's a nice thing to have that you're not going to have to, I mean, maybe you'll do it again if the technology gets better, but at least you have it in your back pocket. We are way ahead of the game in terms of foundation, and that, and that was really important for us moving into the the next consoles. We really wanted to set up the place where, you know, we could start chasing other things like you're saying. You know, there's, there's a lot of other places where we want to become the best and think about and build out further. So uh, the ability to do the head captures and do it to the degree of the success that we had will allow us to, you know, obviously do fine-tuning there, but concentrate on other things that we're after to keep separating us as the best simulation game there is. That's exciting. One other thing that I wanted to ask you about is I, I've been intrigued to see how your role has been affected by the acquisition, if you want to say that, by the 2K team of the WWE license and how that's affected what you do. It's funny. We, you know, we have a lot of fans that are of WWE, our fans of NBA and vice versa. So I think a lot of people, like, I've actually, it's funny, I was so excited about the WWE license because I'm actually a genuine WWE fan. I was really enthralled about it. I've always watched, you know, Monday Night Raw and the pay-per-views and stuff. So being able to market and have a thought towards WWE is something that's really important. I'm not as involved in the marketing, but, you know, I, I work with our marketing team on that side very often because we're always thinking about cross-promotion stuff. For example, this is an exclusive for you. We're going to do a WrestleMania locker code this weekend that will be obviously trying to take advantage of everybody's everybody's thoughts towards wrestling this weekend during WrestleMania. 
So we're always trying to think about how to cross promote and boil out WWE just as much. You know, from a development standpoint, I'm sure there'll be a lot more crossover in the future in future years. But it's just an exciting time because the WWE license is something that a lot of us are passionate about, and it's very exciting. Part of your job is dealing with dealing with is probably a strong word, but interacting with athletes and celebrities and potentially having a role in in the 2K series. How has that changed, and what is that right now? That has developed inevitably with the you know the growth of social media. Like like I was saying earlier, those guys you know talk about their interests and passions on Twitter and social media, and I yeah, I, I notice that, and I will actively seek them out to come and in, into the fold for us, whether that's a celebrity team or an, an endorsing our game come lunchtime or jumping onto the park or you know, what have you. Like there's a, there's a bunch of ways that I've tried to incorporate them and it's an ever-evolving process some of our athletes they connect the, the best way so we had kevin durant release a uh, locker code a couple weeks ago and andre gudala just gave a uh, gave away a locker code this past wednesday and uh, everybody's really excited about that but that's you know a conversation that we continually have he was actually in our in our offices a couple weeks ago and he he knows about how our fans are so passionate and he was he was telling me he's like man you get a lot of a lot of tweets and he's like i i've been seeing all this stuff about longer codes what is that and i was like oh well you know it's this thing that we've been giving away to allow people to get stuff in the game most notably these diamond cards or these cards in game he's like can i give one away and i was like well, i don't see why not so we set up a uh, a ruby card for him and he gave it away this past wednesday and People were really excited, but the funny thing was, he actually, he actually said he was going to give it away Tuesday, and it turned into this big April Fool's joke, and he had a good time with that. So he got to live in the, a day in the life of Ronnie Duque, where he's getting killed for pulling off a prank on April Fools. So he got to see, he got to see what I deal with on a daily basis. And another warrior story that I remember is that Harrison Barnes, I think, one yep. time tweeted, he tweeted, he tweeted something, and he just got inundated with all these people asking for details because it was i think right as the next gen reveal was coming out yep. and it's just the, the, that that passion i think players obviously deal with that you know they have a lot of passionate fans and non-fans alike but it's, it's interesting to level. see th- them yeah to see them intersect with if you want to call it gamers or 2k fans it's been really interesting to see that as well yeah, I always talk about this, but the cross between like what what used to be a nerd, quote unquote, and a, and what it used to be a jock, quote unquote, is so blurred now. Like it's the same nomenclature, it's the same kind of passion for whether it's gaming or it's sports. I mean, the passion is there, and that makes my job a lot easier in a way. In that I will always know that I can put out a a social media message, and it will always be received really well i think a lot of a lot of other games a lot of other products period have you know a bigger challenge there because hey it's not as topical in front of mind every single day tonight there's going to be nba action i can leverage that by obviously talking about the association but think about you know if lebron goes off for 60 points maybe we give away a lebron code or what have you um a lebron giveaway uh, there's a million things that we can do that are based on real life situations which inevitably makes my job easier but also 
it's also challenging in a way too because you're you always got to be thinking about stuff. It was April Fools. You, you got to be thinking about how can I leverage April Fools to create some buzz around Andre giving away the locker code the very next day. It's, con- it's a constant thought about marketing in, in real time, and that's why social media is so important. Well, and the other thing social media has helped it, and I think just time has helped it, is that the stigma from video games, particularly like from when you and I were kids, has changed so substantially. Mm-hmm. You know, it's become partially because of online, partially just because they've been around for such a long time. It's become such an open thing, and a lot of that hasn't been there. So, you know, people, athletes or whoever, can use their social media to talk about that, and people aren't going to make fun of them or think no, less of them not. for it. And I'm sure nope. that helps a lot, too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, when athletes and celebs talk about something, it's it's cool, no matter what it is, uh, to the casual consumer. And them talking about gaming, which, like you said, is the definition of being a gamer has completely changed. It's totally more than accepted in my community. It's, it's embr- embraced. I mean, I know all of our fans <laughs> play our game hours on end, and we really love them for that, but our fans also include some of the busiest guys in the world. Did you know that the, the rapper of the game, when he was big, he was the number one ranked player on PlayStation four years in a row? It's wow, like, that's incredible. This guy, has, this guy has this huge professional career as a rapper, but when he has that little downtime between being in studio and, like you were saying, with the athletes being on the court, they want to play our game. It's 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 a need and a, and a desire. So and it, it's a competitive thing too. They want to be the best. It definitely is a competitive thing because when I was in college, I remember that athletes were among the most competitive and intense people that I ever played video game against video games against. And that's still true. Whether it was when I was in college that we had just come out and they all wanted to be really good at that because it was physical, or just you know I, I played a lot of the the football games that were out at the time and to to play that against an athlete it it did feel different because that's what they're around and so they're kind of those instincts kick in for them and now with the way that things can be ranked and all that stuff i'm sure that fits in as well yeah i mean the the leaderboards has has changed gaming esports being able to watch other people play you know at first when when esports really took off i I didn't really understand it because i'm like why would somebody want to sit around and watch somebody else play. But everybody wants to see, A, what can make them better, but B, why this guy is thought of as one of the best, and maybe I or maybe this person is better better than that eSports e- person. eSports e- is, you know, a, a huge opportunity for us and any gaming company that's got com- competition behind it and something that we're always thinking about as well. Yeah, and it's also, it's a different way to connect. I remember, you know, one of the ones that's always stuck with me is there are videos online of people beating Super Mario Brothers 3 in like eight minutes or something like that. And I always thought that was really, those things were really cool because that's, it's a different way of thinking about it. I'm not somebody who'd be super into playing a game in that way, but to but see somebody it. do that, yeah. it's it's incredible, and it's and it's a different kind of experience. And sport games can do that as well, and really regardless of the sport. And it's always fun to see what people do with the same rules because when you have a piece of tech, there are rules associated with that, you know, the physics and everything else. And so to see how people do that, how people use tendencies to make a different experience. And also, you know, the 2K series has always been really good in terms of, well, allowing users to edit the experience. And so you see on wherever you want to go, Operation Sports or whatever, people mm-hmm. talking about sliders, people talking about draft classes, people talking about rosters. And, you know, to, have, to, be able, to be able to, to, to be able to have that conversation and not only in the way of, you know, critiquing or whatever, but saying, hey, if you want to do it better, you can do it. And to mm-hmm. allow the flexibility is something that 
has also helped gaming, but particularly, in my opinion, the, the 2K series, especially in the last in the last two generations, I would say. All the, all those editable things are super critical to building community. I mean, obviously, you said rosters and um, sliders and all that stuff. There, there is a huge community that is constantly talking about that stuff. But in the casual world, that plays off as people that go in the park and dress differently and what they what they look like. It's really the same thing. The conversation about how you can be custom in your world and how that can affect your gameplay and you can just stand out like that. I think that there's a constant need for gamers to want to do that. And it's really imperative for us to allow gamers to be able to do that. And in line with customization, one really interesting thing that I've, I've heard before from, I think it was from you, might've been from somebody else on the dev team mm-hmm. is how gamers apportion their time in 2k is it's really interesting, you know, between my player and the park and everything else, mm-hmm. and it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, it used to be all quick game. It used to be head-to-head, online, quick game, and we're seeing, I mean, my, my career is definitely the dominant one now, but the park is coming up big time. I mean, people want to get onto the park and show off their threads and, you know, obviously play the online games, but... I mean, it used to just be strictly one-on-one, head-to-head, and now it's really not. I mean, people want to get into those modes where it's customization. And then the other one that's huge for us now is, especially this time of year, is, is my team. Um, and I think that the fascination there is the ability to build your best five and, well, your best 12, but really your best five, and players from different eras. You know, you can have LeBron and Jordan on the same team, and, and then obviously your own jersey. You'll pick whichever your favorite jersey of all time is. I that the San Francisco Warriors jersey and I think like the old school retro Orlando Magic jersey you know being able to build that that custom thing each player has its you can build custom signature skills for each of the players and change their their game style and just put your you know best 12 against other people's best 12s and my team is just take it off as well it's not basically what I'm saying is it's not as simple as the one-on-one let's just play our default rosters and go against each other where we're allowing people to build their own experience and have it relay in the real world whether that's playing your own custom team and my team or your own custom player and my player and the part obviously is there anything about the feedback whether it be the usage data that you're talking about or just feedback Mm -hmm. from fans because obviously you get a lot of that is there Mm -hmm. anything from that that surprised you or what has surprised you the most that is a great question I don't feel horribly surprised, and maybe it's because I see where this is going. I totally, you know, when my career set off in, I think it was 2K10 was the first year of my my career, I totally felt like that that was going to happen because people, I mean, you just look at the, the trends of gaming and people are all about that single career mode and building up their own guy and making it different. So I felt like that was coming. And then the next iteration of that is being able to take that guy and to go online. So like, you know, we had crews in 2K11 and then we now have a park and, you know, being able to jump on and have your guy walk around and not just be, it's not just about the game on the court. It's also about the endorsements and, you know, the lifestyle outside of the basketball court, press conferences, all of that stuff. I mean, I think that's something that people can more relate with than just playing a one-on-one game and having it, the experience kind of be segmented to that. So I, I don't 
really find anything that surprises me per se. I, I also get why my team is so popular. Like people want to build their own fantasy team from using legendary players. I wasn't horribly surprised that bringing back Jordan and all the legendary teams were popular because nostalgia has always been in. And I mean, I don't want to sound like Nostradamus because uh, we always are taking back feedback. I think that's why, you know, my Twitter channel exists. I'm constantly listening to fans about Here's what I'd like to see next year. But it's a lot of the things that we hear are trends in gaming or the association or pop culture. And that nostalgia thing, I think we hit on that at the perfect time. 2K11 was the perfect year to bring back Jordan, and then we, we did the Legends teams in 2K12, and we've had them ever since. Do you personally feel any pressure to make sure that those instincts that have been right so far continue? Because obviously there's the pressure to add things and do everything like that to make sure that the next step is as, as successful as the previous one. Well, we're, I mean, our dev team is extremely hungry. Like, they're always thinking about what the next iteration is, what's the next tweak that they could make to career. Like, they did it really well here, but, like, could they just make this small little change or maybe even a big change that will take it to another level. I think they, the only pressure that they have or we have is to try to outdo ourselves from the year before and have people talk even more than the year before, grow our fan base more than the year before. I think the pressure comes from ourselves just because our team is extraordinarily hungry and passionate about doing the best. I mean, everybody that I work with on the dev team has a, you know, a basketball background and if they could, they'd probably be playing basketball, but they're doing the next best thing, which is trying to make the best simulation basketball experience that they can. So it's a good group of guys that, that really get the, the lifestyle and the culture. Well, thank you so much for taking time. It was a pleasure having you on. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. I I like your stuff. You you got a good thing going. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Take care. Thanks again to Ronnie Singh for coming on. He's with 2K Games, and he's a really good follow on Twitter. If you don't follow him, it's R-O-N-N-I-E-2K. If you're interested in how athletes and entertainment, particularly video games, come together, he's a good follow. And Lots of stuff runs through there, especially if you're in gaming in, the, in NBA 2K, because there's a lot of stuff that runs through there. Next up is Ethan Sherwood-Strauss of ESPN. As we've done a few times on the show, we had a wide-ranging conversation, runs about 55 minutes. We hit Anthony Davis and his development, what the Warriors are doing, the idea of sports and athletes being entertainers and what that can mean for development, and a lot of other interesting issues, including looking forward to the rest of the regular season. It was an incredibly fun conversation, as it always is, and I hope you enjoy it. Well, thanks for coming on again. Love being here. How you doing, man? Doing well. I wanted to start with something that you and I have talked about off the podcast before, somebody who's near and dear to both of our hearts, and that's Anthony Davis. Oh, yeah. I want my credit, Danny. I want my credit for uh, proclaiming superstardom back when he was in Chicago. I'm sure the brow will give me some of that trademark brow money and help me out for being so prescient. I'm waiting on it. So what I've been thinking about with him the last couple weeks is where his place is, not in ranking, but in terms of his impact as a great player and what you see his role as as a great player, let's say two, three years from now. Mm, that's a that's that's a very good question because I always saw him as a defensive superstar in waiting because he had this unique ability. Nobody in the history 
of playing basketball, as, as I've seen it, as I've known about it, is better at blocking a three-point shot than Anthony Davis is. So I always conceived of him as a check on the stretch four. The growth of the stretch four has changed basketball, and it's difficult to find the right type of person to guard somebody like Kevin Love or like Ryan Anderson, that type of player, or even Dirk Nowitzki. And so I thought of Davis as the next chess move in all of that, somebody who can just completely shut down that attack. And that that hasn't happened yet. Instead, he's flourished as an offensive force. So the way I see it going forward is his defense is going to catch up, and that otherworldly ability he has on the defensive end is going to really— you're going to see more of it as he gets into his prime. And he's a really interesting test of what I consider the reverse of what the Warriors are going through right now with David Lee, which is that the Warriors are having a guy who's not a good defender, who's benefiting from being bookended by really good defenders. And Anthony Davis is a little bit overrated. I think he's more defensive potential than defensive ability right now. Mm -hmm. But Davis has just no support in terms of anybody but maybe Drew, and Drew's been hurt a lot, especially recently when he's been out entirely. So that will also help him eventually. Yeah, he is surrounded by just, uh, you know, a landfill. There is a landfill, and he is surrounded by it, and it is smelly, and it is stinky. It is unfortunate and I'm mad at them for trading away Robin Lopez and bringing in Tyreek Evans. They seem as though they don't know what they're doing. I, I guess the Ryan Anderson edition was a great one. That that was good on their part. But he's really uh, he's kind of screwed. And so we might see the uh, the dreaded KG situation play out, where we'll have this brilliant individual talent, and he will he will ultimately be dragging just an awful roster, and then he will cause people, he won't cause people, but the situation will cause people to go, oh, he's not so good, he's overrated because of that. And the funny thing is that, to me, the other guy who is in that situation right now is the guy who followed up as the superstar in Minnesota, yes. which is Kevin, Kevin Love. Yeah, it, I think, it's like, why can't we learn our lesson? We're really going to do this? We've already seen this happen with Kevin Garnett. We're going to do the same thing with another power forward in Minnesota. We're going to go, why isn't his team winning? I mean, he's been there for this many years. You have to make the playoffs once. Look at the stats of when he's in the game and when he isn't. They are a playoff team. They are better than just a mere playoff team. When he's in the game, when he's out, they're absolutely dreadful because it's an absolutely dreadful team. And also, Adelman has not been doing a good job. So I wish that we would rarely go, hey, why isn't this team better with this guy? And we would perhaps more often go, how bad would they be without him? And that goes to the concept of value, and it's something you and I have talked about with Stephen Curry, is that part of the reason I think that Stephen Curry is so valuable is that the team's offense completely falls apart without him. Yes. It's like he's juggling a bunch of plates or, uh, or, or bottles, and they all just crash to the floor when he takes to the bench. And it, it wasn't so pronounced when they brought him Steve Blake initially to uh, take over the duties there, but recently Blake hasn't been playing as well, and it, I think it's a little tough for Blake and Crawford to suss out which guy's supposed to do what. Not that I, I don't think Crawford is necessarily thinking about it actively. He's just kind of doing his thing, and so because of that, it's gotten bad again with the offense when Curry takes to the bench, and so that that is his value. It's really it's really not a matter of oh the Warriors should be better offensively. You know why are they near an average team? They would be near the bottom if it wasn't for Curry. They would be one of the worst offensive teams if it wasn't for Steph Curry. And that goes into the other issue among 
others that I have with Jackson's rotations is that they have two guys in Harrison Barnes and Draymond Green who both statistically and with the eye test because both you and I cover the team are substantially better with Curry on the floor because they're not great creators but they're better not great in Harrison's case at maximizing when they get opportunities and so unless you're going to have a really strong backup point guard you want the more dependent talents to play with your best creator and you want the less dependent talents like David Lee who's an independent guy he does what he does and he's very good at it to be playing more without him because they don't need it. exactly I, I would agree with that here's something if the Warriors have so much belief in Harrison Barnes, what is that they believe in? Because they don't run a lot of back cuts for him to get lobs in the way they've done before with Iguodala and the way Iguodala did with Denver. So they do, do they really even believe in his, his athleticism? Because that's how the athleticism that we hear about would express itself. So why don't we see that? Yeah, that's definitely one thing that we would see. And also, I think we would see some of that with the defensive assignments. I feel like they're doing, they have great defensive perimeter talent, generally speaking. Iguodala is a masterful team defender and individual defender. Draymond is very good. But they ask Harrison to do very little, except for these really weird circumstances, like against the Knicks, when they put him on Carmelo for these various circumstances, and they were bouncing between him and Draymond, and he was just getting slaughtered. Yeah, yeah, he's he's struggling. I do want to I do want to give some words though to I love that power wing that that triple power wing defense when they have Clay Thompson, Iguodala, and Draymond Green all in at the same time. That is awesome. That is some great basketball to watch. I want to see more of that, and I would liken the Iguodala-Green dynamic when those two are playing together to to a football analogy of Green is the blitz and Iguodala is the secondary coverage. You know, one guy is is covering space. He he he's employing a more subtle technique, and the other guy is just physicality and he's rushing after your quarterback. I love it when those two are in. I, I hope we can see more of that. And the other thing that we haven't seen with those guys is them in combination with Bogut, which honestly, as great as the Pacers are, and I think defensively they're the best in terms of talent and execution also because they try so hard. That five-man unit with the Warriors, if you've talked about Curry, Clay, Iguodala, Draymond, and Bogut, covering specific guys and with the versatility could be the best defensive five-man unit other than the Pacers in the entire league. Yeah, and... That's even with Steph Curry playing, and Steph Curry isn't a plus defender. I you you could probably argue that Steve Blake's a better defender, so maybe that five man unit would be even better when Curry takes to the bench. You could still have a formidable lineup in there, and I think that's the future. Should they choose to take it, that's the future of this team is to be beastly on defense. And you know we're preaching to each other's choirs on the David Lee situation. I also think it's a point on which reasonable people disagree. So I get the argument for Lee, and I get the argument for him and his continued role, but it's so tantalizing that they could have that Indiana-level defense without him that I do believe it to be the correct course of action. The only counter to the Steve Blake part of that that I would say is that the offense would deteriorate by such a great volume that I think that would actually hurt the defense. Yeah, I, I'm because... just saying that you could buy some. you could buy some minutes that way. You could buy... Yeah. If you need to bring Curry to the bench or if he gets into foul trouble, you could maybe win that few minutes just on the defensive end of it. Clearly not a better lineup than than the one that Steph would be in. So then if you were the general manager of the Warriors, how would you take that interpretation of the team and move that forward in terms of, let's say, this coming summer? Wow, that's a great question. I mean, I've spoken a lot about how trading Lee is the way to go. 
I feel badly saying it because this is somebody I see him in the locker room and I I talk openly about it. And I don't think I would enjoy being talked about that way. And I don't think I would enjoy somebody saying that I should uproot my life and uh, move somewhere else they don't want to move to. But that's just how I feel about it. Now, there's the matter of who would take him. Somebody would. I don't know quite what you're getting back. I'm not engaged in these trade talks of David Lee, but I feel the way about Lee that I felt about Monte Ellis, frankly, which is... It's addition by subtraction. You know, they thankfully got something for Monte. That's it's really one of the worst trades of the last ten years or so. I think from the Bucks' perspective, of they traded a massive, awesome defensive center for a year of Monte Ellis, so they got something great. So maybe that's why David Lee has not been traded or not. You know, we haven't seen reports of that. Is that they haven't gotten the right sort of deal? But I would be inclined to have an itchy trigger finger with that. And I'm not sure you need a whole lot more beyond that, at least for next season. The problem that you've talked about is that this team doesn't have the uh, the largest of windows and the age cur- curve is concerning so I would be more good I, I, I would want to ask you Danny because you've thought about this more in terms of a longer trajectory what do you think they should do so there are two basic issues and one of them that you alluded to is the age curve which is the fact that Steph is should should be getting into his prime relatively quickly and we can assume that Barnes and Draymond and Festus assuming he comes back and is healthy yeah. are on the positive end everybody else The challenging part about the age curve is that you wouldn't expect them to be better than they are right now. Does that mean that they will drop off a cliff? Not necessarily, but does that mean that that you would expect that Andre Iguodala probably next year will have a worse year or be a weaker player than he is right now? That could be 1% worse. That could be 10% worse. We don't know. So the problem with the Warriors is, are the young guys going to get better faster than the older guys are going to get worse? So that's one big question. The other big question is the salary issue. And so basically the Warriors, and I think they did a great thing to get Iguodala. I'm not criticizing that. I think that was well done. Mm -hmm. The challenging situation situation that they are in is that I think about a roster when I'm doing my salary nerd stuff. I think about a roster in terms of the guys who are going to be paid more and the guys who are going to be paid less. So the challenging thing for the Warriors is that the guys who are going to be paid more, which is notably Clay Thompson and Draymond Green, they are going to be paid more before guys like Andrew Bogan and Andre Iguodala, who are paid properly now but who are going to fall off, are going to be paid less because of the duration of their contracts. Mm. So what that means is that the Warriors are going to have to make a decision about how they want to make their team better. They will have an opportunity, presumably, on or by 2017, which is when Curry's contract expires, to go after somebody. But the challenging thing, based on the cap, as I estimate it, unless it goes up precipitously, which could happen, and that would save them in that sense, is that they're going to have to give up something to get something. And so that can be giving up Clay Thompson to get somebody who has more cost control, or that can be giving up somebody older for somebody who's worse and younger. It can go in a lot of different directions. This is where the Harrison Barnes thing kills them, right? And we've been talking about it, where they, before, the assumption was, oh, they could trade Barnes to get more pieces, he's the hot prospect that people want, or he'll grow into something that will really help them. Now they have to give up a part of their core that they wouldn't want to give up, and they're not going to get anything for Harrison Barnes because he's completely cratered as a player. I'm not sure that he's necessarily cratered as a player. I think that the thing that the Warriors have to think about very seriously this summer is that there are still teams that believe in him. Mm -hmm. And there's a justified reason to do that. He's a very talented guy in that sense. Like, his ceiling to me is not substantially lower than it was when they drafted him. And I had him as the number two available player when they took him. So, obviously, I had Drummond substantially higher. And, yeah, that was a mistake. And we've talked about that. But that talent is still there. So, there are going to be teams and there are going to be coaches that are going to say, I know what's wrong and I can fix it. 
And they might be right. They might be wrong. Don't you think that it's funny? The Warriors' track record of developmental incompetence is advantageous to them when using the trade market. Because if it was the Spurs and these were the results that they were getting, nobody would want Harrison Barnes. It was. It would be, oh man, well, if he can't be good on that team, he's not going to be good anywhere. But because it's the Warriors and they've had Brandon Wright and they've had... God, who, I know there's somebody else. There's Brandon Wright and there was somebody else, right? Where they and, Maybe it's the perception of Monte Ellis that I don't think is the reality that he's done so well and flourished elsewhere. That there's this notion that, oh, Marco Bellinelli, for instance, another one. Or I'll throw in one guy who it's not that he's done well elsewhere, but that I would argue JT. that the, the way the team used him is under speed. Oh, I would say Jeremy Tyler. Oh, Tyler too, yeah. Yeah, who's looked... I don't know if he'll stay in the league, but he's looked a lot better than when he was with the Warriors. So that could be almost an advantage to them, this idea that they're not great at developing talent, and somebody might buy a little too high on Barnes because of it. Now, I don't know what his trade value is. I just know that game by game, the the more he continues to play like this, the lower it gets. Yeah, and the other thing is that it's it's more chances for a, a GM or a coach to see him and go, ooh, that's a problem. Because, and I talked about this, that it was this really rough stretch starting from the, it was the second half of the Orlando game, and then I think it was the second half of the Spurs game that it ended, where he didn't score for eight quarters. And most of that time, we've talked about how amazing Steph is offensively. A lot of the time, he was playing with Steph Curry. Oh. And that's a problem. There are a lot of different ways, and this is actually a criticism I've had of Clay at various points, that when your shot isn't falling, you have to do other stuff to make sure that your team is in it. And yeah, they did win the game against Orlando, but because Orlando is still developing their guys and all that. But there's a real challenge with not doing that. And Harrison's an, he's an all right rebounder and he can get better defensively. But the other part of his game that needs to get better is the idea of, okay, my shot's not falling. I need to be a madman everywhere else to make sure that my team stays above water. Yeah. And the epitome of somebody like that is Draymond Green. And I would throw this question at you because I like, I like coming on here and hijacking your podcast. That's what I do. I hijack it. I start interviewing you. I, I, it's just, that's just how I do things. And it's, it's in my nature. I apologize for it. Uh, but how much money does Draymond Green get? Oh God. Isn't that a question, Uh, huh? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely more than the mid-level exception. It's definitely less than 10 million right now, but I could have an argument of anything in between that. So if we're talking like somewhere between six to nine, I would say would be a fair range. Of course, the years matter. But the other thing with Draymond that's going to be very interesting is he's a little bit older than most guys because he stayed in college for a while, which is fine. So that means that he's probably closer to a ceiling. But the question with him is, is he a starter in the league? And if he is a starter, what kind of guys do you want around him? And do the Warriors already have that? Like, we, we've talked about how we love the Iguodala, Draymond, Bogut combination. And the challenge with that is none of those guys can create for themselves. So then you might want a different two guard than Clay. Mm-hmm. You could keep Clay. He's a wonderful shooter. He's going to get a lot better. You tweeted last night, and I agree with you, that his dribbling is getting better. And that was his biggest weakness. So he could become that guy, but you're going to you're gonna get into that. So then you have those questions. Or maybe you see Draymond as more of a spot starter but heavy rotation guy. Then you get a lot more flexibility because then maybe you pair him with an offensively minded 3-4 guy, a stre- maybe a stretch four who can kind of play other minutes because no guy plays 48 minutes. And I actually think that guys should play less and play more intensely yeah. if they're not an elite player. Like hockey. Exactly. So if you can do something like that, then he's actually a guy, and I've talked about this about other guys before, who I think is worth more money on a better team. Chris Bosch to me is another guy like that. He's a huge value if you have other guys who can do the things that he mm. can't do. And there are other guys who 
aren't necessarily in that boat, who they're going to get theirs. And it's possible Kevin Love is going to be one of those guys. I don't know. We, we honestly don't know. But his international play makes me think that he will get better by more with improved talent because he's a collaborative guy. But he, with Draymond, I think that we're going to see. You were going to say about Kevin. Well, with Draymond, here's an interesting question. I would argue that he's a good offensive player, but the stats say he's not. He's got 48-something true shooting percentage, uh, PER well below average. And so I, I was discussing this with Matt Moore yesterday, how can he be a good offensive player if the offensive stats say he say he's not? So I guess that would be a two-part question for you. Do you think he's a good offensive player? And if he is, then why don't the stats say so? I think that he's not really a net negative. I think that he's not a huge positive. He's getting a better sense of when to do the things that he knows how to do. His interior passing is, is pretty solid, but early in his career, he was taking shots basically more in the Michigan State mentality of, oh, I'm going to save our offense in that point. And basically what he needs to learn is what every young player who needs to learn, because just about every guy in the NBA was the best player on their college team, is there are guys who are better at this than I am. So I think that his shot selection will improve. I think that his turnovers will decrease, which is a big help. But in terms of the broader question of can a guy look bad on offensive stats and look and actually be decent, the answer is yes. And there are a couple different ways. One is that a stat like PER doesn't measure everything. And also the challenge that I have with PER is that it's not a purely offensive stat. The idea was for it to be a more cohesive thing to include blocks and steals and, rebound and defensive rebounding. But that leads to problems. And also the idea that there are things that aren't box score stats. You know, I think Draymond could eventually be a guy who's wonderful at hockey assists. Mm -hmm. Hockey assists are very useful. They're a very important thing. And some of those, if you're a good team, some guys who are good hockey assist guys actually see their normal assists improve. And I think we've seen that with Monty Blake because you just move the offense a little bit and they end up getting that. We saw that last night. Draymond had some nice passes to Jermaine O'Neal that became assists instead of being hockey assists. Yeah. But um, yeah. Well, I, I just jump in. My argument for why he is a good offensive player is this. He moves the ball. He sets great screens as part of it. He sets great screens. We don't really quantify that. And he moves the damn ball, as you're alluding to, with the hockey assist. So we don't really talk about the amount of time used on a possession, but this has been a huge problem for Barnes. And it's, it is, it's funny because these are two guys who play the same position, and there's such contrasts. There's such studies and contrasts. But Barnes's problem is that he loads up with the ball, and everything gets set to deal with him. The offense bogs down around him versus Draymond, where the ball comes to him. He's either putting a shot up, driving the ball, or kicking it out to somebody, and it's just quick. It's instant. And Draymond's knowledge that there's a finite amount of shot clock in my opinion, pushes him into the good or just to maybe the average, the average to good offensive player column. Yeah, the word that I would use to describe the difference is instinct. It's that Harrison's instinct is to stop and assess, and Draymond's instinct is to attack. And that's true on defense as well. And you can have guys that can thrive taking that extra beat. I think in some ways... It can benefit a point guard more because they can see the floor and some guys, I, even a guy like Jordan Crawford, I think it helps in some ways Jordan Crawford to be so aggressive, but I think about what he would be if he took that extra beat and really embraced the team role. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's a nice thing about having the consistency that Draymond Green does because you know when he gets the ball, or even as you were saying, he's an excellent screener, which is the other part of the non-statistic part that I wanted to bring up, is that... The other point that I would like to make on all of this is a lot of people in kind of the basketball, let's say the basketball Twitter, basketball media world, are intrigued by the idea of plus minus and whether you want to talk about rate adjusted plus minus or whatever. And one of the criticisms that I have always had of that is that 
working with plus minus means that you are working from an assumption or an understanding, however you want to put it, that there is some sort of balance between the minutes, the who they play with and who plays when they don't play. And that's the other way that Draymond's plus minus, if you want to think about it that way, or RAPM, is going to skyrocket is if they actually play him with the guys in their team that can play off. Yes, he has been anchored, dragged down by the Spaces and the Bazemores and the Jordan Crawfords of this world and he would look a lot better if he was playing with the better players and he's a player where he can complement better players better than he can bad players because he can't create his own shot but what he can do is function quite nicely among guys who can do you think that in some ways obviously the defensive end they're fine but that in some ways he overlaps too much with Iguodala on the offensive end yeah because neither of them create their own shot and they pass a lot I you know I would need to see more of it together. I'd see I need to see more of the two of them together. I just love the defensive combination so much, and maybe that's just an emotional motivation of mine, and it's not rooted in uh, the objective. But I just think it's so worth it to have those two dudes playing defense at once. It's so cool. Yeah, what I would love to see with them would be to combine the two of them to run, if you imagine, a 3-4 rotation. So Iguodala plays all of his minutes at the 3, Draymond plays the 3 and the 4, and another guy plays the 4 with a more offensively talented guy. And that could be a stretch four guy more in the Ryan Anderson mold. Or the other guy, another Anderson, that would be very interesting with that, would be Kyle Anderson. Mm -hmm. A guy who's more of a creator, more of a passer. If they could get Kyle Anderson, that's, that's the guy I like. I, I, I like best in this draft. And I don't mean I like best as in he will be the best player, but his game is a game that I truly appreciate, that I think is undervalued. I think that people will wise up, and by the time the draft happens, he will get pushed into the lottery. But if he doesn't, man, if the Warriors could snatch him up, that would be great. I know they would have yeah. to trade for a pick. I, I understand that. Before, before the will actually <laughs> descends upon me, I should add that. That That's true, but at the same point, and this gets into something I wanted to talk about with you, there's this really strange disconnect right now in the NBA between the value of a draft pick in February and March, let's say more accurately around the trade deadline, and the value of it in June. And so what we saw was all these teams hold on to their second round picks like they were gold instead of acquiring, let's say, a Jimmer Fredette. Mm-hmm. And every year, without fail, you see three or four teams straight up buy a second round pick. And it's fine, you know, that they can do that. So the problem is, if you can use a second-round pick to get an asset, why not just do that and buy one, even with the money limitations that are in trades now? You're getting more value, especially if you think about the value that getting a win or two, let's say, because let's say a guy who that you could acquire is worth a win or two, in terms of the value of an extra playoff game or even getting into the playoffs in a case like Phoenix. There are all these really weird situations. And so, yeah, the Warriors don't have one now. They basically bought one last year. Yeah. And so, you know, they can do that. On Kyle Anderson, I'm of two minds with him. Uh, I'm a UCLA alum. I like him on a personal level. I like watching him. Like for Dario Saric, I am terrified of him defensively. He doesn't have particular instincts or effort on defense, but his offensive game is amazing. And I think that he'll get better at defense, just like almost every guy does who wants to. And he is the prototype in this draft of a player who would be good in a structure and with surrounding talent that makes sense. On certain teams, I worry that it'll be like Derek Williams, where he'll just kind of fall apart because he won't get the right circumstances. You know, he'll make passes and the guy won't be there. They won't see him when he's open for a three. But if you put him in the right system, and I've talked about that I want him to go to the Spurs for his own sake, because I think that would be amazing, he would be a prototype stretch four for them. 
But you see that. And what I hope, my big hope in terms of the NBA and player stuff is that teams get honest with themselves and try not to put players in situations where they're going to fail as much. Because that just makes me really depressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like thinking about what will be ideal. And I think it's sad. It's sad that we have a league where there are these incompetent franchises and we send the best talent to be squandered often with the worst organizations. It, it's just, it's crazy that, that that's the way it ends up working out, but I don't see it changing anytime soon. What, what are your thoughts on Zach Levine, by the way, and what he could be? Because he had a miserable progression. You know, he was great at the beginning and then it didn't go so well. Obviously a lot of talent, athletic kid. He has a nice shooting form. Do you have any hopes for him at the next level? I do. I actually think that he will be the best pro of the UCLA guys right now. Wow. And the, and, and the reason for that is his mistakes are correctable. And what I think of when I think of a draft prospect is I think of their strengths, their weaknesses, and how correctable their weaknesses are. And his weaknesses, as long as you put him with good surrounding talent and coaching, can easily be fixed. He has the athleticism to play the one and two. He should not be running an offense. And if any NBA team takes him to have him run their team, I'm going to be really pissed off because that's not what he does. But my vision of him is to be the first guard off the bench who is just an absolute terror. And I, I wrote earlier that the guy who I really wanted to play with is another guy we've talked about, which is Kevin Love, because I wouldn't be surprised if Levine ended up being one of the five best outlet recipients in the entire league. The problem is there aren't that many guys in the league who throw outlets. So if you're a team who can do that, and that goes into an issue that is something that I find really interesting, and it goes back to the age limit, which you and I have discussed before, which is this. I would love to see teams be more intellectually honest, and the idea is this. People have talked about how part of the age limit thing is to protect teams from themselves because teams will overdraft high school guys. If you are a team that cannot develop high school guys, the easiest remedy for that is not to not let them come into the league. It's to not draft them. Yeah. And if you are, all you are doing is minimizing the value and you're also, you're minimizing the value because it's going to take them a little while. And if you're a team that needs to win right away, then don't take a guy like that. You know, the Blazers did a decent job of delaying Jermaine O'Neal for a while because they needed that. But then when they got Damian Lillard, not only was he pretty much the best player available, though I think he, I had Drummond over him and other guys, but he made sense with their timeline, you know, with LaMarcus Aldridge and all that. So if you are bad at drafting high school guys, don't draft them. It's, it's already structured in place. You see baseball teams do this all the time. The San Francisco Giants for a long time, you know, they would take certain guys and not take certain guys because they had trouble developing them, and that's fine. And it's a big weakness of the league to say, oh, well, we can't have high school kids in the draft because our teams can't draft and develop them, even though they develop them better than colleges. And it's an easy fix as long as the teams just understand what they're doing. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's funny with these with these draft, uh, these draft situations where we want more time to figure out uh, whether or not Levine's good. We want more time. We want more time. I love the Andre Drummond situation because you can always point to that and say, hey, scouts, you're going to screw it up regardless. You know, this is not going to help you the more they stay in school. You're just going to find another way to confuse yourself. It's just more information um, along with other information. It's comparative. It's a draft, right? So, you know, it's not like when we talk about busts, they're busts relative to other players. So there will be losers no matter what. There will be guys who don't live up to the expectations. And you're probably more likely to just miss on the guy who stayed two years because you don't know what to do with that two years. Now it compares to somebody who has three or four years or somebody who's in Europe. I, I, I like the Andre Drummond example when it comes to these one and done uh, one and done debates. 
And there's been some really good research on it. And one of the big challenges is that you see the narratives come in on guys who stay longer and they get overdrafted. Adam Morrison's a great example. Johnny Flynn's a great example. And to me, that's kind of the idea of why I really like your colleague Amin Alassane's idea of having it where teams get a draft slot of money and then basically they have to pitch to the players. So then it does the artificial capping of wages, which is part of the reason why owners want a draft, but it allows players and agents to say, hey, we're going to find the guy who's the right fit because maybe, let's say, Marcus Smart. Marcus Smart's a guy who isn't going to work everywhere. He's an interesting commodity. I don't particularly love him, but some teams he makes a lot of sense on. Sometimes he doesn't. And if he's willing to give up 300k a year, let's say, to go to the right team, it should be within his right to do that. And then somebody else is going to get paid the extra money. Mm-hmm. So you just you just do that. And what it allows for is it allows for teams and players to be intelligent. Because now they have this weird pressure, like, oh, it's kind of, in a way, like the football thing with Johnny Manziel. It's, you know, you have a pressure to take somebody who's popular, somebody who's famous, but you don't have that same pressure if the entire pool is open to you and you don't go at a certain point. Because then you don't, you as much as I support taking the best player available, you could sell yourself and get somebody better or do something else. It's, it's just a... A really weird system in terms of teams and players getting the right fit. What do you think about this? And this is changing gears a lot. I love hijacking your podcast. It's one of my hobbies, Danny. And I, <laughs> I, I do it with guilt. How do you feel about this Jermaine O'Neal goaltend? Because I'm seeing a lot of anger on Twitter. The league just said that it was a goaltend. Do you think that this is good by the league that they come out and they say we were wrong when, when they get a call wrong? We're referring to uh, the Jermaine O'Neal goaltend at the end of the Mavericks-Warriors game that helped the, uh, the Warriors win because they didn't call it. I think that it's good to admit when you're wrong. I think that it gives you credibility, but you need to use that as a way to get better. Mm. And that and that's the big thing with kind of that part of the silver regime is that he's doing the first part right. The first part is transparency. I think that I like the verticality release that they did. I like doing things like this. I think that what it shows is that it, it's, it's saying, okay, we understand our problems. And that's the biggest problem with the NFL is that I think that there's this issue that they don't do that. And I like that the NBA is doing that separation. However, it means absolutely nothing and might actually be a negative if you don't follow through and fix it. Mm-hmm. And this gets into into other stuff. You know, it's like you, you identify a problem. Teams, if you see tanking as a problem and our colleague Nate Duncan doesn't think that it is as much, and, and that's fine. Their reasonable minds can differ on that. But let's say the league does see it as a problem. Then you have to do something about it. And the nice thing for the NBA as a league when, during the Stern era is that if you basically admit that nothing is wrong, then you don't put that pressure on yourself. But putting that pressure on yourself should make you better. I would agree. I would agree there. And there, that, that's good insight into how relationships work where it's not enough to just keep acknowledging that you're screwing up if you don't change the behavior you're just going to drive your partner even more insane for that acknowledgement it's like okay but you have no this is just a defense mechanism meant to placate me while you're not changing the thing that's getting me mad in the first place fat to that on that specific play though i gotta say for all the tears over it and i know that I, i understand it because it's a great mavericks team that should be in the playoffs and it's stupid that they they might not be because of this conference system you shouldn't get rewarded for Monte taking a stupid leaner with 11 seconds left. I know it was a goaltend, <laughs> but come on. You know, that's a real, I want the result over the process. Now, of course, Jermaine shouldn't have, uh, shouldn't have, you know, swatted at it in the goal. But I can understand that a little more of trying to protect the rim. I can understand it over Monte, who should have been taking the last shot, instead racing to take a terrible shot with 11 seconds left. Or not the last shot. I think there was a slight difference, but a shot at the very end. You know, so I, yeah. I just got to put that out there. 
And the other part of that is that there are bad calls in NBA games all the time. I think that the refs do, on the aggregate, do a good job. Not all of them, but most of them. And the fact of the matter is, bad calls are going to happen. I, as long as they're not systemic and benefiting a certain team specifically, you assume that's a part of the game. And the, the way that my, uh, when I was playing soccer as a kid, the way I like the way that my coaches always said it. And they said this, if you play close enough that the refs can decide it, then you can't complain that you didn't win. Mm-hmm. And while it's disappointing and, you know, do that, but the idea is that basketball is a really hard game to officiate. I think everybody agrees with that. And I think the horrible, horrible officiating in the NCAA tournament has given some voice to this. So what you have to do then is you can either play into it, which guys like Dwayne Wade do and other guys. And I, I'm generally fine with that because that's taking advantage of a situation. And so the idea is get better at it. And if you're going to do that, then do that. And also, I mean, if we're talking about bad calls, Dirk Nowitzki had at least one, but likely I think it was more like two or three hacks that should have been called shooting fouls that were not called at all. And so, you know, it goes both ways. So if they had called one of those, then that offsets, assuming, let's say, on the last one when Bob Fitzgerald went crazy, yeah. that that balances the points. And so, you know, that happens all the time. I'm not saying they're equal mistakes. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm saying that if a game is decided by a ref's mistake with two points left, that's just the cost of playing a sport that's hard to officiate. Yeah, and what we do a lot of, too, is we get mad about the call after seeing replays of it. You know, we're really being honest. If we're really being honest out there on Twitter, you can see a delay often with these things where there's not anger, and then once you get the slow-mo replay, that's when the anger happens, but it's not entirely fair because you weren't seeing it like that as it transpired. The other interesting aspect of that with the slow-mo replay, I, I believe that we start to see intent where intent doesn't exist just because once you slow human beings down, it looks like they can make decisions in that amount of time. I, I would reference the LeBron James elbow of Roy Hibbert. That was an insane flagrant foul to me. And then when I looked at Twitter and I saw that people were agreeing and saying that it was a flagrant foul, I was just, what world are you living in? And I believe a lot of that is because in slow motion, it looks like LeBron James can actually jump into the air and contort his body while getting a shot off uh, with a double clutch, elbowing Hibbert in the face. It seems plausible once you slow it down. Agree completely on that, and that also leads me into one of my favorite points that you've ever made, and it was, sadly, it wasn't on the podcast, of the idea of being able to review who the last play was off of, but not being able to review if there was a foul. Because what it's leading to in certain situations are these really awkward circumstances where a guy was fouled, but the ball went off him. So you can't review part of it. So you either have to choose between, and this gets into my legal background, you either have to choose between the inequitable result of what actually happened based on what you can call, which is that the ball went off the guy who got fouled, or you can do the kind of BS thing, which is give the team the ball who it went off of because it should have been a foul anyway. Yeah. And it's just a screwed up situation. I love that. I love when refs have to have their noses rubbed in their own bad decision when they're at the review monitor and they're seeing who the who it went out on after a foul that they should have called it just to me highlights the absurdity of the entire review system and i'm against it i'm against these reviews i prefer a system where it's just the ref calls it and if he's wrong he's wrong it's more drama it's something else to debate on pti I don't want the purity of the moment compromised. I want people to react to whatever happened and react to it with the ref's call or not the ref's call without this idea of we're going to adjudicate this. We're going to now subject this to retroactive reality. That's boring. I want everybody to jump up at once celebrating something without the creeping sense of doubt that it might be taken away later. 
The only exceptions that I would make to that would be, I think, reviewing to making sure shots were let go on time, especially because that always means that there was a stoppage in play. And twos versus threes just because... I Twos versus threes, if you can... I, I like, okay, think, okay, I want to say, that one's okay by me because... They just change that silently without a stoppage. You know, they they go, you hear during a timeout, they've changed it to a three. That is cool. I just, I place a huge emphasis on the entertainment aspect of the game. And for whatever the reason, a lot of people are into the game and write about it. They don't think about it as entertainment. They think about it as, I don't know, this, this thing that I love called basketball. But really, it's an entertainment business. And I don't think it's worth the, I don't think the accuracy is worth the entertainment value. I don't think... Getting it right, this value of getting it right is so important that we should bore people at home with these constant reviews to see if the clear path was so clear pathy. That's what I'm against. I favor generally in these discussions, I favor entertainment over accuracy. Two points. First of all, I agree with you. Second of all, I worry more about the in-house people than about the people on TV because the people on TV can do something else. Mm -hmm. People in the stadium have to do that. The other part of it to me is the idea that basketball is a sport with a lot of scoring. And I think that it's less important to get everything right when you have a lot of scoring chances as opposed to, let's say, baseball or hockey, where scoring is so rare that you need to get it right because that's a huge difference. You know, if in hockey, let's say it's a five goal game, you know, whether it be three to two or whatever, then getting the goals right is extremely important because there are very few of them. In basketball, there are lots and lots and lots of scores. And there are lots and lots and lots of potential calls that affect about the same point value. Yes. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna call a just a touch foul in the last in the last two minutes, let's say they don't have a foul to give, that is functionally worth the same amount of points as a blown goaltend call. So as long as the league makes it their business to get the best people in to do that, you can make the argument that it'll all balance out. And if something that you and I have talked about before is it in some ways it helps the narrative of the sport because it it not only gets it faster, but it gives you something to talk about. And it's something to talk about that's really frivolous in that sense. You know, it's not going to linger. It's not that important. But it's interesting, and we all know with our employers that having something to talk about is something that makes them very happy. Yeah, and I, I, I think that this is a matter of not seeing the forest for the trees or whatever cliche you want to apply to it where you're so focused on your sense of what's satisfying emotionally of getting it right feels good to me. That That is a good value that you can't step back and you can't see the broader concern of this game needs to entertain people. And, you know, that's that's... That's why it exists. It exists as entertainment, not as some, I don't know, ideal of uh, warfare that's played out in a nonviolent way or whatever else we'd make of it. I, I don't know. But I think that there's a myopia. There's a myopia to it. And I think that part of why the NBA is doing what it's doing is it wants to be like football. But as you've mentioned, the possessions don't matter as much. You know, I mean, you have more possessions. So just make it up later. You didn't get that call. Maybe you'll get the next one. It's not like football where one decision can potentially devastate you. And the other thing that goes along that line, which is would actually make the game faster in a lot of ways, is eliminating the stupid, I'm going to wait to call the foul to see whether the ball goes in or not. Oh. You know, it slows the game down. It always pisses off crowds. And there's no point. If it's a foul, it's a foul. If it's not a foul, it's not a foul. And it doesn't matter whether it's a two-shot foul or whether it's a three-point foul. It doesn't matter. You get it right. And then you just move on. Then nobody complains. You know, if, if it's a foul, you do that. 
But I wanted to go, and I wasn't planning on talking about this, but I, I, you, you led into it, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. My next big thing on the age limit is going to be this parallel on athletes as entertainers. And the idea for me is that, let's say we're talking mostly about singers, though I think you can make the argument about dancers, painters, anybody. The idea is that when you have entertainers, education can be valued. Obviously, a lot of actors and all that go to school and directors and everything. Shout out to Natalie Portman. Yeah, absolutely. Or many other people. Um, Mayim Bollock, who was on Big Bang Theory, went to UCLA, where I went. There, We have a bunch of Shout out to Julia Stiles. Absolutely. And so the point is that they can do that. But you never know with entertainers when their prime is going to be, and you never want to lose years for no reason. And what I get into with that is if you have a 16-year-old, let's say Ricky Rubio when he was 16, who is a prodigy, who is a really great player, or Lionel Messi if we're talking soccer, you don't want those years to arbitrarily be somewhere other than the best league just because. Yeah. Oh, it's and, and And so you get into – so the challenge is, and this goes back into the idea of just not drafting guys, is that if you are an entertainment property other than professional sporting leagues in the, in the United States, because this isn't true in Europe, you would never say, oh, let's say young Michael Jackson, you're a wonderful singer, but you're not 16, you're not 18, so we're not going to put you on a record. It's just a crazy way of, of analyzing it, and we've learned with basketball that some people are just really good young. And it's weird to arbitrarily kneecap that because some teams are stupid. Yeah, it's it's you know, and there's a lot there's a lot to it and a lot of why it still exists. There are racial reasons, but there's also a matter of it exists this way, so things there's inertia. Things just perpetuate themselves and it feels normal because it's been around. So that's why people don't view it as crazy. But it is crazy. It's insane. It's it, we, we do and that, that analogy is great where we can have entertainers who are younger than eighteen and they can entertain us, so why can't people entertain us and make money that way playing basketball. Now, the argument I rarely hear is this. I, I've, I've heard it the other side, where this benefits basketball, having this age limit, because then you get guys who are closer to their prime, so they're more ready, so you're seeing the best product. You're not seeing a rookie struggle. I get that, but what if there's a basketball acquisition phase in the way that there's a language acquisition phase, where you have this period in your lifetime, this, this, this finite period where you are going to be shaped, you are going to be formed. I, I think for human beings, it's before six years old, where you acquire language on this very, very base level that becomes so, so welded into you that it's almost visceral in how you experience it. Maybe it's the same with basketball, where this aspect right here, this, this age range of your late teens, that might be a basketball acquisition phase in many ways. So by diverting people to the college system, to the system where the rules are different, where the three-point line is closer, where there's a 35-second shot clock where the referees aren't controlled by one overarching body, so it's just a grab-and-hold game. By doing that, we're screwing up these basketball players. There's evidence that suggests that this is exactly what's happening, that we're screwing up these players, so we're not indeed getting the better product when they come out later at 22 or 23 as the plan goes because you're not really reaping the benefits of them being near their prime because you're screwing them up and making them go down an opposite path of the path they would have gone down. That's my concern with this, and I don't really hear that concern getting voiced a lot. That's an excellent concern, and I would even draw it further to the fact that everybody that I have ever talked to acknowledges that high school and AAU basketball is not good for players' development as, as eventual professionals in their ceiling. And to tie this all back, a really interesting example of this to me is Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis, because of the way his growth spurts happened, was trained as a guard. That's the position he thought he was going to play. That's what he was going to do. So his ball handling and his shooting 
was developed more than if he had grown earlier because coaches at that age really just develop guys based on their class, you know, based not class meaning, you know, like yeah. rich or poor, but class meaning their size. And so you see these really interesting guys who were trained in the American system, in the European system, from what I understand, they try to do more of teaching everybody how to do everything. That's why Marcus Gasol can pass. And so you see guys do that. And my question with that is, isn't it widely acknowledged that the group that has the most incentive to maximize and develop young athletes are the professional sports leagues? And the cost outlay of having those guys, especially if you can televise their games and do all that stuff to offset it and have people go watch, especially let's say if you did them before in some ways attaching with NBA teams, you're doing that and you're making their development be in-house. And that's what soccer teams do because soccer teams understand that they have this incentive and they understand that while not every 15-year-old prodigy is going to become a good player, the 15-year-old prodigies are going to become better players by the way we develop them than if we just let some random person who doesn't care how good they end up being do the same thing. Yeah, and part of why that might happen in Europe is because there's more of a sense of if we don't do it, some competing league will and they'll get better. And the NBA doesn't really have that yet. So uh, maybe we start getting our ass kicked in the Olympics. Maybe then <laughs> we'll start worrying about how the development is going. And I do actually wonder about that. I wonder if we're going to uh, experience a comeuppance for delaying the development of our American players um, and if Europe is going to shoot ahead of us because they're, they're using this academy system. Or Asia, depending on how they do it. I think that there are a lot of possibilities for that. And I think that the other thing that it makes the NBA susceptible to in today's media world would be a competing league that did not have these arbitrary silly limits. That if you made a league, maybe it was less teams, let's say it was 20, in the markets that the NBA is not serving, let's say Seattle, and you gave them an opportunity to control all the phases of development, and you gave 16-year-old and 18-year-old kids, maybe you don't have them play in the pro league, but you give them a chance to not only develop with quality coaching, but to get paid when they're young. And that's the other moral part of it to me is that I think of a guy, and this is going to be a really weird thing to say on a basketball podcast, but I think of a guy like Justin Bieber. I think that it's totally fair that even if something happens with his life and he's not able to produce material and make a ton of money after he turns 18 or 20 or whatever, that at least he got to do that when he was 16. Now, if you have a basketball prodigy, not only do they not get the coaching, but they don't get a chance to make any money from it. And I think that's really bad, too. And there's something else that's happening rhetorically here where the people who are concerned about the corrupting power of money are people who have money, where they're underrating the awful <laughs> the awful plight of being broke. As somebody who at points has been broke, I can tell you I would like to have money a whole great deal. But I do not underrate that aspect uh, when, it, when these players say that they need it or want it. And I don't fret and wring my hands about how they're, they're going to be screwed up by, by getting money later on. It's so great to have money. Money can buy you things. It can buy you health care for family members. It's so fantastic to have. It's speaking from a, a perspective of incredible privilege to look at that situation and say it's okay because there's some risk that, I don't know, it might make them too fancy. What's the, what's the concern? What's the concern about them having the money too soon? What, what, what will they do that's so bad that they won't get into trouble with with the lack of money? I've never understood that. I think the idea is that they would, you know, that they wouldn't have the work ethic and anything like that. But if it's a smaller amount of money and they understand what the incentives are to do well and to be, a, let's say, a team player both on and off the court – then as long as you produce enough incentives, then they're going to buy in even earlier. And also the other factor with that is that if you develop people in-house, there are lots of ways that guys can fall through the cracks. It can be, you know, they have 
they don't have the right friends. It could be, you know, they don't have support from their parents. It could be a lot of different things there. It could be that, you know, a lot of kids college isn't for them and that's, that's fine. You know, it's not for everybody. And the college experience, while it was a positive part of my life, it doesn't have to be for everybody. And some people just aren't wired in the same way. And to make basically everybody go through that for something which is completely unrelated to the field with, with which they do is such a strange thing that it just facilitates these things with no real benefit it, as opposed to developing the people in-house. And it corrupts the college experience in certain ways too. So not only are we screwing up what these players are doing and how good they're getting at basketball, we're really messing with the educational system where professors are pressured to give certain grades. I know there was that tweet of an essay a UNC, uh, a UNC star athlete had produced that wasn't very good, that received, I believe it was an A-. minus, And so that's a corrupting aspect. And not only that, since the NCAA is such a corrupt body with their collusion and not paying these players, uh, it creates all these unintended negative consequences. We start this black market economy of these players getting paid under the table. Not only that, but we have a situation where and here's something that doesn't get talked about a lot either. I, I covered a water polo team, a Cal water polo team at the school paper once. And what ends up happening is that you get this professionalization with these sports that nobody cares about. I won't say nobody with water polo, but very few that couldn't make money because you're diverting money from the sports that make money, the basketball and the football. You're creating this unrealistic, crazed atmosphere with these other small-time sports that aren't making money. They're flying all over the place. They're hiring a sports psychologist, and it becomes a huge distraction of what they should be learning at school because they essentially have created a faux professional sports league. So uh, the whole thing is screwed up in so many different ways. And the other part that I agree with, first of all, with, with everything that you just said, I think there's a really interesting factor in that. Also, the requirements that schools put on players in order to stay on scholarship, you know, they have to practice this many hours a week, directly runs against their goals as a student. And so even the people who want to be student athletes have trouble with that because they're athlete students by contract in certain circumstances. But the, the bigger thing, and this is the bigger question that I, wanted, uh, I was thinking about and wanted to ask you, is this. The NBA has done a very interesting job of trying to become a, a league that wants to reliably generate a profit for their owners. And that's fine. If they're a business, they're allowed to do that. My question is this. If you want that as your goal, then why is it so insanely important that everybody who owns a professional basketball team be ludicrously rich? <laughs> hey, it's just, it's important to the people running the teams, I suppose. I don't think it's an important cultural ideal. Because the, the idea behind it, I've been of this thing for years, and I think almost everybody who's into sports, when they're really young, when they're 14 or 12 or whatever, they say, oh man, how cool would it be to own a professional sports team? And I think that a majority of the people in this country who would want to run a professional sports team aren't saying they want to do that because they want to make money from it. They want to do it because it's awesome. Yeah. And... If you want to make money from it, that's fine, and some teams can do that. But the problem is putting in a profit motive, just it just changes it, and it leads to all uh, some of these really weird experiences, and I think that goes into what the problem is with the Oklahoma City Thunder. But I think that if you're an owner that has a profit motive, you probably shouldn't be owning a team in the NBA because the inconsistency with it and everything. Well, well, and Danny, also, you're, you're right. You're correct. The, the problem is just that we're in a circumstance where the ultra wealthy 
not just in the United States, but in many places in the world, are so wealthy that they can set their own rules and tilt the balance in their favor, regardless of how right that is. I mean, there's going to be a new lockout, and the owners will squeeze more from the labor, and a lot of the reason that can happen is that we have a society where people are wealthy enough to crush millionaires, and that's just that's how it's going to go down. So I don't like the way it is, but I just don't see any change to it considering the uh, surrounding structure. That's an excellent point. We'll move on to just looking forward to the last couple of weeks of the regular season. We don't want to get into the playoff stuff now. What are you looking forward to most to, to resolve or to find out in the next, let's say, two weeks? What am I looking forward to in the next two weeks? I like the Western Conference playoff race, even though even though I find it to be unfair and stupid that these East teams will make the playoffs in the West. A good West team, a perfectly good West team will not. It's still going to be a great race to the finish. So I'm going to enjoy that quite a bit. I enjoy the Warriors drama, the Warriors intrigue. Jackson, can he keep hold of his job? How are we going to feel about that team going into the playoffs? I quite enjoy that. Uh, the Indiana Pacers fascinate me. What the hell is going on over there? What will it matter? It seems like there are so many different opinions. I asked the question of how many Western Conference teams could they beat of the top nine, and there's a huge range. Some people think they couldn't beat a single one of them. That might be a bit extreme, but that's interesting to see a team that was so lauded and so touted at the beginning falling apart and having to put it all back together. So th- those are the storylines that I'll be eyeing. And for me, while I wish that the playoff structure was different, I'm very intrigued at the middle of the East. I think that it's not necessarily relevant for the end game, and I think that it's going to be overshadowed by an incredible Western Conference playoffs. But Toronto, Chicago, Brooklyn, Washington, they're all very interesting teams. They're all teams that have fascinating narratives and incentives. You have a team like Brooklyn that is in win-now mode. You have a team in Toronto that is almost definitely going to be better next year and beyond than they are right now. Washington, probably in the same boat. And to see who plays who and what that means is going to be very interesting. And then the other part, as a draft, Nick, is to see how all both the morass of teams that are around 20, 21, 25 wins, to see how all of that works out. And also to see how far Detroit can fall, because they need to fall to at least eight to keep their pick, and they're going to do that but to see if they could maybe even get a little bit closer because as screwed up as that team is, they could get better because they have a legit player in Andre Drummond. Yeah, I, the, the, the Detroit Pistons and how they're just going to rectify all that. Uh, I mean, what were they thinking this year, man? What were they thinking? Josh Smith, it's uh, jo- Josh Smith, Andre Drummond, and Greg Monroe at once with Mo Cheeks coaching. I mean, what 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 was that? It's it's difficult. We we have a lot of new teams uh, or new owners, I should say, and they seem to be making the league quite competitive, quite smart. It's moving on from the old school types who are running things, but we still have Detroit, and they're still making fascinatingly dumb moves. Yeah, and also I would add in Brandon Jennings, not necessarily him as a player, though there is that problem in terms of ball movement, but also giving him the money they gave him for four years was a mistake because yeah, because of Brandon Jennings' reasons. Yeah, for because of Brandon Jennings' reasons. And that was the funniest part to me about that. That was by far, other than drafting Giannis, the best move that the Bucks made over the summer was they picked up Brandon Knight and Chris Middleton to allow another team to overpay a guy money they weren't going to pay him. And if you ever wanted an argument for how teams can benefit from restricted free agency, all you need to look at is that and the Kings getting Grievous Vasquez for Tyreek Evans. 
you know, there is a there is a really interesting benefit to this. If you have a guy that you don't love as long as somebody else does it and they're silly enough to try to do something else to make it work. Yeah, yeah. I've always I've thought about that too, where there's a benefit in having some guy in it, let's say in a tanking year, to do what Hinky did essentially with Evan Turner, you know? to just have a guy chucking shots, playing at a fast pace, because maybe there's a team dumb enough to get swindled by that and to get swindled by the counting stats. It is funny how you can snooker another team that way. Okay, I'm going to end this on a question that was something that uh, people that I discussed at the last Warriors game, but you weren't there, which is how much money not do you think that he's worth, but how much money do you think Evan Turner is going to sign for this offseason, per season? Oh, man, I would have said differently. I, I think I would have said a lot differently had this trade not happened because it would seem to be that the Indiana Pacers are collapsing and he is getting some blame for it and that's it's highlighting it's highlighting how essentially he was a looter in a riot so that will change the perspective i'll go five mil a year i don't know how many years but five mil what do you think five's about where i'm saying between four and five but i said before the, he got traded that i was thinking he was going to get in the seven to eight range yeah this trade was this ludicrous. trade cost th- that's funny this trade cost evan turner a lot of money at least 10 million probably wow it's amazing. Well, thanks so much for taking time. Always love talking to you, man. Love talking to you too, man. See you soon. Thanks again to Ethan Sherwood-Strauss for coming on. I always appreciate him taking the time. You can read him at ESPN. You can watch him on True Hoop TV, and you can follow him on Twitter at Sherwood-Strauss. That's S-H-E-R-W-O-O-D-S-T-R-A-U-S-S. I'd also like to thank Ronnie Singh of 2K. You can follow him on Twitter at R-O-N-N-I-E-2-K. I really enjoyed having him on to talk about the intersection between sports and entertainment. He's one of the people who I think has the best finger on the pulse of that, and it's a growing part of this business that a lot of people just don't have a real sense of because they're not around it a lot, and he is. So that is the first part of this podcast. The second part is my conversation with Andrew Perna and Jared Weiss about the Celtics. If you've already listened to that, thank you for listening to both. I appreciate it. If you have not yet listened, give it a listen. It's a really fun one. It's something different, but that will be the template for a series of other conversations that I'm going to have. And going back to the Eliminated series, which is what that is, I am looking to get guests who are knowledgeable about each and every NBA team. I have some in mind for some teams, and other ones I'm more open, and I am open to all suggestions, even for teams that I like, the people that I have, because I want to make it a conversation, and I'm also going to have multiple guests on certain ones, so Anybody will be considered, and I will reach out to people, and I'm excited about that. You can email me at daniel, D-A-N-I-E-L, dot LaRue, at realgm.com, or you can hit me up on Twitter at DannyLaRue, that's D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. I appreciate you listening, I appreciate any and all responses, positive, negative, I want to make it as good an experience as it can possibly be. Thank you again, take care, and make it a great day.
When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you loved the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. 